Good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. My name is Adam Romans. I'm the lead pastor here at the church. And uh, if you have your Bible, I want to invite you to turn with me to the book of 1 Peter and to the second chapter, 1 Peter chapter 2. Uh, this morning, much like last week, we'll be reading verses 4 through 12. And um, <clears throat> much like we will read next week, which will give you a sense of um, how long we're going to be in these verses. Uh, but you can find the reading on page 1014 and page 1015 in the Blue Pew Bible. And um, we'll read the scripture here this morning and um, see what God has to say before uh, we take communion, which we'll be taking communion here in about 30 minutes or so. First Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 4, Peter writes this, As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There is a book that I continue to trip across throughout my adult life that was written, I think, some 25 years ago. And the author of the book uh, uh, entitled the book, uh, Everything I Needed to Know About Life I Learned in Kindergarten. It's a clever little title. Everything I needed to learn about life, I learned in kindergarten. And, and what the author does of this particular book, although I have not yet read it, is he takes lessons. No, I want to read it at some point in my life. I'm sure it's a great book. This is not the point of this conversation. But, <laughs> but I, I, it's piqued my interest so many times that I actually went and looked up like the, the titles of each chapter. And, and the chapter titles are all centered around these various um, life lessons that we had as children. For example, there's an entire chapter devoted to put things back the way you found them. And there's another chapter, clean up your own mess. Don't take things that are not yours. Say sorry when you hurt somebody. Like we can see how we learn these lessons as children. And of course, there's something probably very moral and behaviorally correct about all of these lessons that can apply to our life. 
But as I tripped across this book again this past week in preparation for this message, it had me thinking about writing a different kind of book, sort of a spin-off of that book, except I would call my book All the Lies I Learned in Kindergarten, How Certain Lessons in Our Childhood Failed to Be True in Life. Now, I know for absolute certainty that millions of copies have been sold of the other guy's book. That's all from the positive. Now, I'm trying to sell something negative. I can undoubtedly sell like 65 copies to my family, so I would be a very distinguished author. But, but nevertheless, if I were writing that book, do you want to know what the very first chapter would be about in my book, the things that we were lied about as children? The very first chapter would be about that lesson we learned from every adult that we came into contact with. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That is a straight-up lie. I mean, when you think about your childhood and those moments that are, are sort of um, impactful, things that you remember, you know, you, you remember the first fight you had with your neighborhood best friend and the way and the way that he said something or she said something about you, to you, and it just wounded you. And as we're adults now, of course, there are these relationships that we have, and in these relationships, there are things that people say to us, about us, and it hurts. Sticks and stones do break bones, and words, they actually hurt us. It had me thinking about the past couple of years and how there have been uh, how there has been a lot of name calling that goes on amongst friends. They'll label each other or characterize each other with words from, from the world. Now, many of you know I'm not on social media. I am on Twitter, although it's somewhat passive. But from time to time, I will get screenshots from uh, a friend or a family member over uh, two people that I would know who are going at it on Facebook. And typically what happens is there's a controversial post and then a commenter will come and have a comment under the post and then the poster will comment about the comment and then they're off and running at each other. And in conclusion, you know, the, the, uh, the original commenter might say about the poster, you know what you are. You are nothing more than a Marxist, critical race theorist inspired, bleeding liberal. And on the other side, the poster will say, the poster of the Facebook page will say something along the lines of, well, you know what you are. You're a Christian, nationalist, Trump-loving, right-wing nut job, you know. And, and what happens is we begin to see in these correspondence the, the, the hurling of insults at each other, the characterizations that are, are leveled at each other. And, and when, when I get these screenshots, the thing that is so interesting about it is that the reason I know both of them is because they're both Christians. They both love Jesus. They both believe with their heart in the gospel. They go to church and worship the Godhead. They, they love the Lord. They've been on mission for him. They, they repent of their sin like they're Christian people and they're going to spend eternity together. But for whatever reason, they've decided to take these identification markers from the world and use those things to say this is who you are and friends if we're not careful if this is happening to us if we're not careful we'll begin to think that we are who people say we are 
But what Peter does here in this text is he reminds his audience that you are who God says you are. And brother or sister in Christ, when we understand who we are in Christ as a people of God, it changes everything. So instead of throwing names at one another and using unfavorable characterizations about each other from the world, let's, say, let's see what God has to say about us. How does God see us? First Peter begins to answer that question, at least in part. He tells the church that he is writing to just exactly who they are. And he is writing to, to, to not just Jewish people. He's actually writing to a Gentile and Jewish con, uh, a, a group of believers in Asia Minor. He knows when he is writing this to them. He is writing to them in the midst of suffering, in the midst of heartbreak. They're going through a hard time. And Peter has the right word for the moment to say, this is who you are. This is who you are. And what an encouragement, verses, but specifically verses 9 and 10 are. And it is to verses 9 and 10 that I wish to speak with you about this morning. Last week, we noted that Jesus was the foundation of the church. But in verses 9 and 10, we find out the identity of believers. Let me just read verses 9 and 10 once more. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. We'll skip down to verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now, I'm not sure if you're the underlining in your Bible type of person, but if there are ever two verses in First Peter that should be underlined, I would say that these two verses are definitely in the running. They're serious contenders. It is beautiful language, assuring words, incredible realities. If you belong to Christ, you take on, you have this very real identity. The words that Peter uses in verses 9 and 10 have actually been borrowed. They've been borrowed from uh, the Old Testament. And in particular, they've been borrowed from God because God would actually, in the Old Testament, use these words to describe his own people, the Israelites, describe the nation of Israel, the Hebrew people. But here Peter uses the language, again, not for a Jewish audience who are Jewish by nature, but rather for those who are in Christ. And he takes these incredible characteristics and he applies it to the people who make up the church of God. But we should notice the way that verse 9 begins. It begins with the word, but. And if I might say it reverently, there is a big but here. And my wife hates it when I make the joke about how I like big butts in the Bible and I cannot lie. So I'm not going to make the joke. I'm not saying anything. But there's a big but here in verse 9. And I cannot lie. And, and, the, and this is a big word. There is a contrast that is taking place in Peter's language. He has just got done describing and talking about those who have rejected the cornerstone. But, but now he's going to begin writing about those who, uh, those who have accepted Jesus as the cornerstone. 
In verse 7, we're told the honor is for you who believe. And really, in verses 9 through 10, here is the honor. You know, in verse 5, you yourselves are being are, are like living stones being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We might say, what does that mean? What does that look like? Well, it's in really verses uh, 9 and 10. But, but before he gets on to, to telling all of these wonderful things about the identity of those who believe, he makes a comment about those who do not believe. You'll remember from last week, we said that um, Jesus is the foundation of the church. He is the living stone, the, the resurrected Savior, and he's the Son of God. And we know he's the Son of God because God, he, he chose him. He was precious to God. And you'll remember that when Jesus was being baptized, the heavens opened, and God said something. He said, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. This Jesus, the Son of God, was, was chosen, and this Son of God was precious, uh, was very precious uh, to God. But, but, but not everybody would accept him. Rather, there are those who would reject him. That's what verse 7 says, the stone that the builders rejected. And a stone of stumbling in verse 8, a rock of offense. Not everyone is going to believe in this Jesus or make this Jesus the Lord of their life. Not everyone is going to build their life off of the cornerstone. Rather, the cornerstone is rejected. And what, what uh, Peter says in verse 8 then, they stumble, that is the they, those who reject Jesus, they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. According to the Apostle Peter, those who stumble by disobeying the word, well, they were indeed destined to do that. That word destined, it means appointed. And this passing comment on which Peter does not elaborate, it raises exegetical and theologically thorny issues. Commentators can be divided on how to understand this appointment or how to understand this word destined. Does God, if we take the verb as a divine passive, appoint those who reject the message of the gospel? Or is it an appointment of those who choose to disobey? Well, this is an exegetical crux that oftentimes will have an answer based upon our own particular theology. But one thing is absolutely certain in verse 8 that Peter brings together two very important truths. One would be the total, uh, the, the, uh, the total responsibility of man and the absolute sovereignty of God. They disobey. That is, that is to say that humanity is responsible for their rejection just as they were destined to do, which speaks of nothing being outside of God's control. Peter somehow brings this together, and our minds begin to bend, trying to figure all of these things out. And I would encourage you to study this in and for yourself, but, but, but Peter does bring together uh, human responsibility and the sovereignty of God in just one sentence. And, it, and then comes the but. Those, of you, those people who have rejected, they have disobeyed the word. But you, 
there's something different about you in the contrast of the unbelieving stumblers over the stone and rejectors of Jesus, believers in Christ have these beautiful and profound identities. And there is no other passage in the New Testament that more explicitly associates these Old Testament words and terms for Israel than with the New Testament church than this one. And these terms have everything to do with the identity of the people of God. You're a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. You're a people for God's special possession. You are a people who have received God's mercy. These titles come from Exodus chapter 19 when uh, God constituted Israel as a nation and also from the book of Isaiah in the 43rd chapter when, Isaiah, when God promised through Isaiah to, uh, to reestablish Israel after the exile. And, and, and Peter uses very, uh, very good words, doesn't he? He says, you are a chosen race. An alternative translation would be that you are a chosen people. This comes from Isaiah 43, 20. You are, when, when God said to Israel, you are a chosen people. God, uh, Peter just got done saying that God chose Jesus to be the cornerstone uh, to, that was precious to him, a cornerstone uh, that, was, um, uh, that was both uh, precious and, and chosen by God. And now the language is for you who belong to God through faith in Christ. You are a chosen people. You are a chosen race. The word race, it, uh, it, comes, from, um, it comes from this word that speaks of a common lineage referring to a recognizable ethnic group sharing both ancestry and custom. So the idea here is that as a chosen people, we have a common ancestry, meaning that we are born of God, that God is our Father. As a, work of the, as a result of the work of Jesus Christ, we now belong to his family. And this work uh, which, uh, by which we are chosen was, was done in love. We can't forget other passages of Scripture that should fill our minds and our hearts, as Paul would write to the Ephesian church, even as God chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we might be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoptions as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ. In love, God chose you to be a part of his family. And we share as a family because God is our Father, Jesus is our Savior. And the custom that we follow is not some rules-based religion, but rather the custom is really us following after our elder brother, the Lord Jesus Christ. You are a chosen people. Peter says you are a royal priesthood. Peter brings together two offices from the Old Testament when, because royalty would speak of uh, kingship and priesthood would speak of, um, of the Levites and their priestly role. 
And here, Peter brings it together to say, this is who you are. You are the king's priesthood. You belong, as it were, to King Jesus. You inherit a, a part uh, in the kingdom of God. You're royalty. And for those of us who think about our lives and you make jokes about big butts in the Bible, you're going, how in the world could I be royalty? I make terrible jokes. But this is who God says you are. Your royalty, your, your royalty, you have, you belong to God, to Christ's kingdom. You're his brother, he's your brother, he's your older brother. You inherit his kingdom. And as a priesthood, just like the Levites had access to God, we have unending access to our heavenly father. There's no veil. We are the king's priesthood. Again, the Christian gospel levels all people and gives us status in God's kingdom that we otherwise would not have. This is who you are. He says that you are a holy nation. In Exodus 19.6, God consecrates Israel for himself. And here, Peter applies it to believers in Christ. This is who you are. You're set apart from the world. You're no longer influenced by the ways of the world. You're no longer in the darkness. God has called you into his marvelous light. You're set apart to belong to him as a holy people. It's not a nation that is to be comprehended here on earth. It is a heavenly nation. Heaven is our citizenship. Heaven is our home. You are a holy nation set apart. God doesn't forget you. You belong to him as his holy nation. Peter says to the church that is suffering, you are a people, in verse 9, belonging to God. You are a people for my possession. And this word possession, it's more than just God owning us in this and in an unhealthy relationship. Rather, this is a God who possesses his people by redeeming them. It's Isaiah 43.1. God says, listen to what God says. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. This is who you are. You belong to God. If you are in Christ, he owns you because he has redeemed you in love. He has called you by name, and he declares, mine. Then Peter takes it a step further in verse 10, doesn't he? Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. <laughs> you were nobody. Now you're somebody. And just in case, someone might want to sort of puff their chest out and say, well, I was not destined to disobey because I'm that good. Peter says to them who they are. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. You see, the reason why we can take on all of these incredible uh, names, uh, all of these incredible identities is because God and his mercy gives them to you. 
He did not say to Israel in the Old Testament that I have chosen you because you are mighty in number. You'll remember we've quoted that verse so many times. And the same way, we can't say, well, we belong to God because we are mighty in our own strength. We are strong before the Lord in and of ourselves. No, we're sinners. We're fallen people. We are recipients of God's mercy. And it is because of this that we can make a claim that this is who we are. Because of the mercy, this is who we are. You are not a bunch of wackadoodles who get together to sing about a dead historic figure. You're not a bunch of religious fanatics who get together to get their religious fix on a Sunday morning. You are not a political body. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, a recipient of God's mercy. Now, I would like to see by show of hands who thinks they deserve this. None of us. I would like to just say this, though, as well. If we could just begin to believe these identities, imagine the freedom we would feel in the morning when we wake up and we say, I wonder if anybody loves me. I wonder if anybody cares. I mean, if we were able to enfold into these realities of knowing who we are because of what God has given to us, I wonder if we could enfold into these realities what burdens could be lifted. I wonder what trials could be endured. These titles belong to us. And the beautiful thing about the language here is that it's not just the individual that Peter is writing to. He's using this in plural terms. This is us. I feel like we should write a TV show about that. This is us. You know, this is who we are as a group of believers. Friend, we're not alone. We wake up every day and we're able to put our feet on the floor knowing that we have these titles. God looks at us like this. He tells us who we are. We don't deserve it. And mercy, God gives us these titles. And so our feet can go to the floor and we can face a new day. What an encouraging word from the Apostle Peter. This is who you are. Now it occurs to me that we need to hear about our primary identity far more often than what we do. And therefore, it is incumbent upon us to speak words like this to one another, to encourage one another, to, to, to encourage one another in all of life's hardships to say these things to one another. For if you are in Christ, your identity is so overwhelmingly incredible and so overwhelmingly inspiring. So instead of calling each other names that, are, that have been created and defined by the world, 
Let us look at our brothers and sisters in Christ and speak these words of encouragement. Let's believe these things to be true so that when our feet hit the pavement every day, we know that we're not alone, we're completely loved. All of these incredible titles belong to us. But then as we speak to other Christians, let's use words and ways that tell people who they are from the perspective of God Almighty. I, was, uh, I saw a quote this week from Pastor Scott Sauls who said this, Joy and cynicism, both are contagious. Everyone infects one, uh, everyone infects the world with one or the other. And it had me thinking about encouragement and discouragement. Both are contagious. Everyone infects the wor world with one or the other. Let's infect our Christian brothers and sisters in Christ with these incredible truths to encourage and be filled with joy and to not discourage and to be cynical. This is who you are. <laughs> I don't know about you, but it's like, what do I do with this? I don't deserve any of this. What is my to-do point? How do I apply this? Well, thankfully, it's in the text. Verse 9. It's the end. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. What you and I do is we proclaim. That is to say, we declare we declare both in words and song. We declare with the way that we live our lives the excellencies of him. That word excellencies, it was used of excellent character in, in Peter's day for those who were worthy to be praised because of the way that they lived and their character. But in a spiritual sense, it is not only speaking of character. It is speaking of divine power. We proclaim, we declare the power of God in our lives. That's what we do. How do we respond to these incredible truths? We proclaim him and his power. I can't stop singing. I can't stop singing. That's the only line I remember from that song. But I can't stop singing. I can't stop singing. I'm thinking, yes, that's it. We declare the excellencies of him. We proclaim him. We didn't liberate ourselves. We didn't take ourselves out of darkness into light. It was all the power of God. We belong to him. We just want to praise him. We just want to declare it to everyone we know in everything we do, who we belong to, because he is so awesome. We are so not. And we have all of these incredible identities, and we don't deserve him. Friend, we praise him. That's what we do. And one of the ways that we praise him is that we come together at communion and we do this together as a church family. Our sins are many. We recognize that. But as we come and we dine and we take of these elements together, we proclaim him and his power. All of this is possible because of what Jesus Christ did Jesus lived a perfect life. He died a sinner's death. He rose again, and he purchased for us a redemption that we might belong to God and take on all of these incredible titles. 
So as we come to uh, this morning to focus on the Lord's table, proclaim him. Proclaim him and his excellencies. And doing that in and of itself, there is this humility of, God, I, I couldn't do it myself. I'm not powerful enough. But yet we proclaim him and his power and what he has done, taking us out of the darkness, bringing us into the light. We praise him. We proclaim him. Brothers and sisters, let us do this now as we reflect on our own lives and prepare our hearts for communion. Let's bow our heads.